morning, everybody. Uh, this is the next episode of Planet Profits Podcast. Uh, our guests today are Sam and Sarah Adams of Vert Asset Management, which uh, I'll tell you guys, I've done a lot of looking in the sustainable real estate space. And uh, these guys are, uh, if not the only game in town, uh, pretty much the best game in town. So I am uh, honored to have them as guests on the podcast uh, to be able to explain to our audience what sustainable real estate investing is. Um, and uh, so with that, uh, as, a, as a short introduction, um, maybe Sam and then Sarah, uh, you guys can tell us uh, a little bit more about your background. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having us on. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to, to share this time with you uh, and your listeners. Uh, we are Vert Asset Management. I'm Sam, the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder with Sarah. And part of my role as the CEO is to head our investment research group. We pair up with some academics that have spent their career studying sustainability in real estate. And we use their wisdom, their knowledge, their data, their research uh, to help us build uh, the portfolios. And so a lot of my work uh, is around the research and the selecting of the companies. Cool. Very cool. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, I've definitely got some questions about the, the academic nature of it. Uh, Sarah, please tell us a little bit about you. Uh, yeah. So thanks again for having us. Um, Thank you. So my name is Sarah Adams. Chief Sustainability Officer is what I focus on most at VERT. Uh, that means I'm leading on the engagement that we have with the companies that we invest in the funds. Um, the advocacy piece uh, that's liaising with the federal, state, local uh, government on different regulations that are changing around ESG in financial services and in the built environment. Um, and then also as a certified B Corp ourselves, we are a certified B Corp and we like to kind of get the message out that others can do the same thing. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I think, you know, uh, for investors, they typically buy a fund and uh, they look to see what the returns are. Maybe they do some research before they buy the fund um, or they do some research into the financial advisor who recommends the fund. But I don't think investors really understand how important the shareholder advocacy piece on the back end can be for achieving positive impact. So that's definitely something that I, I, I want to circle back to and, and ask some questions about so you can explain to our audience better than I can, uh, what that's all about. All right. Cool, cool. All right, so uh, just to help us get warmed up um, and just to uh, uh, satisfy my own curiosity, uh, Sam, yes. are you related to revolutionary war hero Sam Adams? No, but I, I wish I was, you know? That would yeah, be... Don't we all? That's, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the closest I can say that I'm related is that, um, well, I'm a patriot, right? He was the, the brewer of patriot revolutionary. Um, I'm a patriot as well. I love America. Um, yeah. And I love beer, though I don't make it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> actually, so you have a, I do, do like, you have a favorite Sam Adams beer. I do have a, a couple of favorites. Um, thankfully, like this, he, you know, the company makes good beer. Um, yeah. I it used to like Boston Lager the most, but I think Wicked uh, Hazy or Wicked Easy is probably my favorite now. Um, and um, Sam Adams makes a surprisingly good 
non-alcoholic beer too. So. Well, uh, that is surprising. Um, I find the whole I find the whole concept of non-alcoholic beer surprising, but maybe that's a holdover from you know being in high school and and trying to drink and and uh, the options were were not as good back then. Uh, no, they that, were that awful. seemed to be a, a piece of the market that's just exploding. With, with... Well, they, they were awful, and I didn't understand the point of them either, but my mom stocks them, and in, so I had a couple of them. And now when I reach into her refrigerator, I'm like, well, rather than like a ginger ale or a Diet Coke, I'll have this, right? Because it actually tastes good now, which is, which is a game changer. That's that's interesting to think of it as an alternative to a Diet Coke and not as an alternative to a beer. That's, that's somehow more appealing to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, shout out, um, something that I didn't realize until I was doing a, r- a little prep for this podcast, is uh, Sam Adams, or technically Boston Beer Company, which is the publicly traded um, uh, version of Sam Adams, yeah. um, they bought a really good local Delaware uh, microbrew craft brewery called Dogfish Head. Yeah. Um, and Dogfish Head has a variety of really good beers. Uh, yes. They're 90 minute IPA, they're 120 minute IPA, although my wife could uh, explain that I probably shouldn't drink too many of those. Nobody should. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, so my own personal favorite Sam Adams beers are definitely of the, of the Dogfish Head variety. But uh, I remember I went to college at Amherst College in Western Massachusetts, and then I went to law school at Harvard Law School in Eastern Massachusetts in Boston, and that's where you know Sam Adams the beer is based. And so I remember because I'm old and the options were less in those days. That was like the craft beer that was available, and it was good, thank God. Um, so it's it's good to see them uh, still hanging around. Uh, we've gotten well, far afield. Well, uh, just to just to square the circle there. Um, Sam Calagione, the founder of uh, Dogfish yes. Brewery, is um, I know him. But he he uh, grew up uh, spending summers in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, which is where my mom lives. So we actually spent that. some time in the summers long, long time ago. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So uh, Dogfish Head is actually based in Lewes, Delaware. Yeah, and I am from uh, a small New Jersey beach town, Wildwood Crest, New Jersey, which is. Uh, essentially, on the other side of um, a small Atlantic Ocean divide, uh, and normally one takes the ferry, uh, especially if one is, is heading, say, down to Florida in the wintertime. So you might take the ferry from Cape May to Luz. But uh, Sam Castiglione, um, in one of his first promos for Dogfish Head, uh, rode a rowboat filled with cases of Dogfish Head beer. Uh, across the ocean, from Lewes, Delaware to Cape May. No way. Uh, Cape, Cape May is like the wealthy beach town uh, yeah. on the Jersey Shore. Um, and so he, uh, when he was launching his brand, he was like, I'm going to ro- rotate Cape May. All these rich people are going to buy craft beer. Uh, and the rest is history. That's great. That's hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but we're not talking about too much about beer uh, anymore. We're going to move into sustainable real estate. Um, so I guess my first question is, my understanding is that you guys are not a REIT, not a real estate investment trust, but you are a real estate fund. Could you please explain for our listeners what the difference is and uh, why you chose the structure that you did? Yeah, we're a fund um, that invests in public equities, 
right? So like a regular stock fund, uh, like the S&P 500 or something, but we invest in the sector of real estate. And most public companies that are in the real estate business are REITs or real estate investment trusts. And they enjoy a specific tax advantage that they don't get double taxed like most C corporations. They pass on their income straight through to investors um, without being taxed. Um, so REITs actually have uh, uh, many subsectors. There's office, there's residential, there's retail, there's industrial, there's all kinds of sectors. And so by investing in public equity, public companies that are in the real estate business uh, via REITs, you can get exposure to all types of property, all types of real estate, uh, and all, not all countries, but most areas around the world. So it's a great way to diversify your investment into real estate rather than saying have, owning a single building or a single structure, right? This is a far more diversified approach. And so um, what we did was we took that approach, which most, uh, until our fund came along in 2017, most other funds, almost all were conventional. They didn't have a tilt towards sustainability or a preference for sustainability. And so we effectively built the first one that was available on an individual investor or financial advisor basis. There were always big institutional investors interested in sustainability uh, that invested directly into sustainable properties uh, before us. Okay. Okay. Um, and does your uh, does your fund structure enable you to to hold investments, have holdings within the fund that would not be available to you if you were a REIT? Yeah, so a REIT would be buying you know individual buildings um, or or properties uh, or assets, real estate assets. Um, we, as a mutual fund, now this week we turned into an ETF. Uh, are allowed to buy public other public companies. So that's the benefit of our structure. Cool. Um, since you brought it up, let's touch on that. Uh, for the for the, the layman at home who doesn't who doesn't really understand the difference, again, why did you guys shift to an exchange traded fund from a mutual fund? What's the oh. advantage of being what's the what's the advantage of being an ETF? There's three main advantages. Um, one is lower taxes. So uh, ETFs don't distribute capital gains as much. So you don't have an annual tax bill or as high a tax bill. Uh, we were able to lower the expense ratio of the strategy um, because the ETF structure is a, a bit more efficient. Um, and ETFs are available to more people in more brokerage platforms, more custody platforms. Um, so for those reasons is why we, uh, we switched to the ETF. And, and from my perspective, um, often an ETF has a lower minimum for an investment, uh, which, which also makes it uh, available to more, to more people. Yeah, um, you can get into it easier and cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Uh, all right, so now you mentioned that you guys uh, are a sustainable real estate fund. Let's talk about um, performance a little bit and maybe learning curve. Uh, I guess the first question is, you know, there's this sort of myth out there. In general, it's a myth that there's a trade-off. Um, you're either going to do well or you're going to do good. You're not going to do both. If, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're buying a sustainable investment, there's going to be a, a performance cost. Um, in general, the research shows that that's not the case. What have you found in the real estate space? And, you know, you guys are relatively new. Have there been any uh, has there been any learning curve uh, in your performance um, as a fund? 
Well, I'll talk about the sustainability, the financial performance of the fund, and then Sarah can talk about what REITs are doing that makes them money through their sustainability initiatives. Um, we're very careful to structure the portfolio so that it delivers competitive market rates of return. And as you said, Joe, there's no uh, requirement to underperform because you're tilting the portfolio towards more sustainable companies. In fact, we think, and the academic research shows this, that uh, companies that are making their real estate portfolios more sustainable enjoy things like lower costs, lower utility bills, lower maintenance costs, higher revenues from higher rents. And so they're more profitable than conventional real estate uh, owners. Uh, when we package a, a group of sustainable uh, real estate companies together as a portfolio, we get similar or better returns, we hope, over time because of that financial advantage. Here's how that works. Uh, if you invest in a sustainability initiative, usually it's an upfront cost. Think about putting solar panels on your roof, for example, right? There's a big capital outlay up front, but then you save money through time, you know, ongoing for a very long time. If, if, if real estate companies figure out how to do that, they're building more value through time over the long term for their portfolio. And we think that that will eventually accrue in their stock price and that benefit will translate to higher returns for the portfolio, right? There's a trade-off there. You need to be a long-term investors to see, see those those uh, gains come through because they don't hit on you know day one or the first quarter or whatever. They might take a while to take in. And of course, with any tilts, any strategy that you change from a market strategy, you're going to have periods of outperformance and periods of underperformance. And so you need to be prepared for that. But as long as you're a long-term investor, you should be able to capture those gains. Good, good. And, so on, yeah, on yeah, the sustainability yeah. side, um, Sam mentioned a few things, you know, these initiatives that the companies are undertaking that are considered sustainability, building solar capacity, et cetera. But it really, it factors into how they're lowering their emissions over time. That's what we're looking at currently around carbon emissions. First, it was you know, energy efficiency for cost reduction, for sure. But now it's becoming carbon emission reduction because you might be facing fines um, from a regulatory perspective. And so we're measuring this and tracking this over time. And I don't think it's immediately intuitive to uh, the layman um, where the emissions are in real estate. Like, you know, you can think about, it. I've got a car, I drive my car around, if it's, if it's a gas guzzling car, it's emitting um, carbon, I, I understand that. Uh, but if I, um, you know, if I walk into a, a shopping mall, um, and I believe Simon Property Group, which owns shopping malls, is one of your holdings, uh, yeah. if I walk into a shopping mall, can you explain to me wh where are their emissions and, and where are their opportunities to reduce emissions? Yeah, uh, uh, real estate as a whole has a huge carbon footprint. Uh, they use, buildings uh, around the world use 40% of the world's energy and create 33% of the world's greenhouse gases, right? So that's a huge number, right? Um, and most of that comes from these three categories. One is 
the building of the properties, all that cement and steel and glass that goes into those, let's call that embodied carbon. And then there's operational carbon, which is the use of electricity. And so, you know, all these, they have the lights on running the computers. Where does that electricity come from? Is it coming from a grid that's, you know, burning coal or oil and gas to, to make that electricity? Um, but then there's also uh, facilities that have things like um, gas, you know, like uh, a restaurant will have a gas stove or a, an oil uh, furnace or those types of things. So uh, really the energy that you consume on site, the electricity you use, and what went into building the uh, the property. Okay. Okay. So those emissions aren't like a tailpipe that you'll see from a car, you know, right there when you're driving behind the car, but they are their demand on the grid. So those emissions are being created and expelled, you know, maybe physically someplace else. But the good news is that we know how to reduce those energy buildings reduce energy right and these are things that uh, everyone knows about you and you do better insulation you have better windows you have a better, smarter thermostat um, there's some real basic stuff here that we never really did with buildings uh, um, you know back in the 70s and 80s that we now can do and drastically reduce the energy use uh, and the emission resulting emissions from the buildings and so your portfolio holdings, do they tend to be older buildings uh, that are getting retrofitted and made more energy efficient? Are they newer buildings that are made more energy efficient from the get-go? Are they companies that are in uh, either or both of those spaces doing the work? Talk to me about that, new versus old. Yeah, it's a combination. <clears throat> but remember that, it, or, or it might be good to point out that REITs really aren't developers, right? They tend to be owners or landlords. So they own properties, they acquire uh, properties, uh, they do some building. Um, and we're actually actively looking for the ones that are keeping older buildings and making them more efficient, right? That's far more better for the planet and cheaper usually in the long run than tearing down a building and building a new one, right? Because there's a lot of carbon emissions that come from those building uh, materials. Um, but Sarah, maybe you could tell the story about that healthcare re that um, you just talked to and how they were dealing with their new portfolio. Um, so uh, this healthcare re we engage with uh, the companies in our portfolio, and uh, there's been a lot of um, acquisition recently in REITs, and the healthcare REIT specifically um, had kind of a playbook that they had developed over time around uh, investing in LED. And it might sound like a very low-hanging fruit, but the payback period uh, is quite short, often around three years um, to 18 months, depending how how big of a project, that property owners are comfortable with that. And it does reduce uh, your energy draw on the grid, um, and it and it reduces costs overall. So they recently acquired a portfolio of companies, and they can already go out to say, this is how we can immediately invest in those new properties or new to them properties to create more value in those existing properties. Wonderful. Just, yeah. um, now I'm wondering how sustainable my doctor's office is. Should I pick a new doctor who's got a more sustainable office? I'll have to look into oh. that. You should go to your doctor's office and say, hey, have you thought about switching to LED lights? Have you thought like about that. 
these improvements. And that really is our engagement campaign to really oversimplify it, but it's going to uh, these REITs and telling them, hey, there's all these innovations, there's all these ways to save money, to make more money that these other companies are doing. Have you thought about uh, doing that? And a lot of the times, you know, us as individuals and companies, they're just busy running their business and they're not looking out for these opportunities. So uh, we like to be in the position to point those out. Which is wonderful. And I think it also uh, leads into or highlights how, you know, ESG, uh, it, it's, it's a way to do better business. Um, it's not uh, it's not some sort of charitable thing that you do instead of being a good business. It's it's one tool in the box to being a a a more profitable, a higher quality uh, business. Um, so you know, I, I I always find this sort of political attack on on ESG to be nonsensical. When you sort of explain what ESG is, everybody I've ever explained it to has always been like, "That's common sense." That um, uh, and so it's it's good to see that that common sense also applies in the in the real estate field. Um, you mentioned Simon uh, Properties before. I had the opportunity to um, go on a bike ride with one of the the board members of Simon Properties, and I told him what we did. You know, we invested on an ESG basis in real estate, and he was one of our holdings. And uh, he says, "I hate the word ESG," and I'm like. I, that's like it's not a word, right? The acronym. He goes, it's not environmental social governments. It's good business. It's sound operating principles. You're just running an excellent business if you're using less resources to produce more goods, all right? If you're treating your people better, uh, if you have less employee turnover, if your customers are happier, if you have better risk controls, you know, people call that ESG, but it's just sound business principles. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um... On a on a side note, I actually went to uh, school as a kid um, with one of the children of the guy who owned Simon Property Group, All right. uh, and um, his family was by far the wealthiest family anybody in our school had ever heard of. Uh, I remember he flew us he flew us on a private jet uh, to Indiana uh, for his uh, bar mitzvah. Um, this is in the days before we knew the private jets were environmentally unsound. Uh, uh, and the reason we went to Indiana for his bar mitzvah is that his dad also owned the Indiana Pacers basketball team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that kid was a smart kid. Um, you know, I, I, I remember that kid was a good student, a smart kid. So it's not surprising to me that his, that his family, uh, and his family's business is being run intelligently. I'm glad to hear it though. So they're a very interesting family. They, the innovations that they are using in in their retail malls, right? They're now using in their in in the in the in the Pacers facilities and everything. They're they're bringing they're cross pollinating sustainability from real estate to sport and from sport to to real estate. It's oh, really nice. interesting to see that because here's what happens when when a business owner recognizes a way to make money from any initiative. They look for places to apply it. And there's so many opportunities with sustainability uh, to <clears throat> boost your profits that you often see these types of innovations start to start to scale and 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 uh, you know develop across lots of different areas. Cool. Let's talk about the composition of your portfolio a little bit. I noticed that 
uh, you guys are global investors. Um, you invest in companies around the world, but I also noticed that the majority of your investments are here in the United States. Um, can you tell our audience why that is? Is I mean, you mentioned you're a patriot, uh, but surely, surely your investment decisions are not are not purely uh, based on America. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, um, no. Um, Did you mean you're a patriot that you're from the East Coast? Oh, like a New England patriot. Yeah. Uh, or- yeah, well, yeah, technically, but no, I meant uh, like yeah, the Patriot, Patriot, uh, U.S. Patriot. Um, no, the 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 U.S. was the first uh, com- country to pass REIT legislation, so they um, the U.S. has more real estate investment trusts than other countries, and they tend to be bigger. Um, so about seventy percent, if you just held them in market cap weights, uh, you'd have about seventy percent of your portfolio in U.S. real estate. And you'd have 30% uh, abroad, and that's effectively what we have because we hold the portfolio in in market uh, cap weights. Um, and the same thing goes for sectors. Um, you know, we have 15% in residential, and you know, uh, 15% in office, and 20% or so in specialized because that's what the 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 market cap weights are. And that mm-hmm. keeps us well diversified. Yeah, uh, and so like that. Yeah, and how often do you revisit that? You know, you keep it effectively market cap weighted. Uh, and if I recall correctly, you use dimensional uh, fund advisors uh, to help with some of the management. So, are you guys like rebalancing to market cap weights on a daily, monthly, yearly? How often does all that happen? Well, one of the reasons we chose Dimensional as the sub-advisor who does the daily trading for us for the fund is because we really like that way they do the efficient trading and the efficient rebalancing rather than, you know, once a year, once a quarter, they do it daily with cash flows, but they're not prescriptive to spend a lot of trading costs to get the number exact, right? So they're a flexible and patient, and that helps reduce costs. So you know, we pick the securities, we design the, the, the portfolio, and then they do the day-to-day running. Uh, and that's a really nice matchup because we have the connection to the, the academics that help us choose the, 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 the firms on sustainability criteria. And we get those massive efficiencies that Dimensional brings to the table by being a big global, uh, you know, 40 years of experience in trading international and domestic securities. Awesome, awesome. Tell me a little bit about those academics. Uh, you know, when I when I think of um, you know academics and investing, I normally think of uh, factors, uh, small cap or uh, value that have been to some extent kind of proven to outperform over time. And when I think of academics in terms of climate, I think of you know people doing research into the weather and. Uh, extreme weather and or maybe uh, physics research into how to uh, create better solar panels or, or better nuclear reactors. I, I don't really understand. I'll be honest. I don't really understand the academic and real estate piece. Maybe you could explain that for our audience. Can I just in response to that right there, um, you know, climate change and how it affects other sectors, it's a really interdisciplinary field. So it's not just weather and then investing on one side, but our academics have been looking at this for a long time around urban planning, um, how the 
leasing of the different space, how this is affected. But I'll let you speak more to the specific academics. But just really to understand, we're looking at an interdisciplinary yeah. topic. So we have two academics. One's Gary Pivo, who we like to call the grandfather of sustainability research. Back in the 80s and 90s, he was writing papers on what was the most important issues around sustainable and responsible property investment. Uh, and that was really coming from his background in urban planning and how it how real estate development affected local communities, uh, how it affected natural resources, uh, and what were the most important issues. Uh, and uh, we we pair up Gary with Franz first, who's at Cambridge in the UK. Uh, Franz is more of an econometrician. He looks at things that building owners are doing, like saying getting a green building certification, and then he measures what happens to the financial perf uh, uh, performance of the building, and then of the portfolio of the buildings, and then the stock of the company that owns those buildings, right? And so what you have here is Think of it as Gary was identifying the most important issues and the you know what are the metrics to use, and then Franz is measuring what metrics have materiality. I.e., that's, um, that's the word I was thinking about as you were talking. I was thinking about materiality. Now these aren't the only two academics. Let's use these guys effectively as proxies because they're also looking at all the rest of the academic research that's in their particular area and keeping tabs on that. And so we use them to help us identify the important issues, what are the most material metrics from that, and then how do we find the data to you know, select the companies that are doing well on those metrics? Cool, very cool. Um, I think that'll be helpful for our audience. Uh, I, I don't think most people understand that. Um, all right, we're coming towards the end of... Joe, before you let me finish on, as, as Sarah was saying, it's interdisciplinary and it's fast moving, right? In particular, uh, since we've uh, launched the fund in 2017, we didn't used to be able to get any data on climate risk. But by working with our academics, working with a couple of data partners, we built a new climate risk data set that told us which of the buildings in which portfolios owned by which companies are exposed to sea level rise, river flooding, heat stress, wildfire. We built the first database ever of that. Now there's a whole bunch of them. Um, but now you can identify which companies are um, exposed to these risks more than others. This is new. And it's also, as Sarah says, interdisciplinary. It, you need the climate scientists. You need the econometricians. You need the, the building owner. That you need all kinds of things to put that together. Very cool. Very cool. As, as, as somebody who I mentioned, I, I grew up uh, on the Jersey Shore, um, close to the beach. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I worry about the long-term uh, implications for those who own real estate, uh, wherever they are. Um, uh, you know, if you if you're by the beach, you're worried about sea level rise and extreme storms. If you're in, you know, California, maybe you're worried about wildfires. Uh, you know, the, if you're in other areas, you might be more worried about flooding. Um, and and as a mom and pop real estate investor myself, I, I try to take that stuff into account before I make a, you know, before I buy a house, before I buy an apartment. Um, and, I, and I've noticed that, yeah, the data that you can get on that stuff has gotten better. Um, and it's good to know that the data for, the, for your larger investors is, is even better, I'm sure. So that's, yeah. I'm glad you guys are taking that into account. Yeah. Uh, 
Let me finish um, by, you know, you mentioned things are moving quickly. Um, imagine you were in charge. As you guys are aware, the, the Council of the Parties is happening uh, right now in the, in the Middle East. Um, I don't know to what extent they're discussing real estate there. Uh, if you, you know, if, if you were uh, the real estate czar of the world, what would you be, what would you be recommending? How, how could real estate uh, do more to help us solve this climate crisis? Um, well, gee, you put me in charge. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, here's, I don't know, I'll, I'll kick this over to Sarah, because this is what we effectively do in our engagement campaign. Um, we try and encourage REITs to do better. Um, and um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way to, to lead by innovating and then by making excess profits from those innovations when they, be, when they, when they work out. Um, but then there's bringing up the laggards. And it takes a while for the laggards to see that the innovators are beating them by, you know, uh, by adopting these sustainability technologies. And sometimes a little push from the regulator, like Local Law 97 in New York City, which is, you know, giving fines to buildings that aren't decarbonizing, uh, is helpful. Um, and so if I was in charge, I would do that via a carbon tax. But maybe, Sarah, you could tell what, what, what things they should be doing and what we've been asking them to do. Uh, sure. So, I mean, all, you know, with this disclaimer, uh, that we don't have all the answers, um, but some of the things, uh, are just about retrofitting older buildings, uh, doing, you know, not deep retrofits exactly, but insulation, maybe changing your windows. And a lot of these things aren't, um, you know, very exciting per se, I think it's not necessarily new technology. Um, that makes a difference because what it is, is having less pull on the grid that you are already using. Um, but we're asking companies to, to set net zero targets um, as a way into some of these uh, different uh, kind of uh, interventions, if you will, to, to make a plan of investment over time uh, that they're doing not after they get the fine from local law 97 or in a handful of other jurisdictions that are rolling out similar uh, environmental uh, energy benchmarking rules, performance standards, um, that they have a plan, that they do an energy audit of their existing building, and then they put together a roadmap of those interventions that they're going to take. And those companies that are succeeding are those that are then acquiring new properties and saying, oh, right, we already have a, a list of interventions and it's not something new that they have to take on um, when they get these new properties to manage and they can already ex extract value from the, the new properties in a positive way. That's that's wonderful. There's, there's a guy I follow, follow on Twitter who... Uh, he often will post some sort of intervention uh, that we already have, some sort of technology that already exists, and he'll say, uh, we already have the solutions, we just need to implement them. And, yeah. and I find that a very hopeful message, because I think some people are like, they're given the despair, they're like, what are we going to do? We don't know how to solve this problem. No, we do know how to solve the problem. Um, we have the solutions. Uh, we need to implement them. Um, and when we do that, we're going to make more money uh, and make our quality of life better. It's win, win, win. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, we even uh, there's even a great example of a storage um, center that owns several storage properties that they started putting solar on the rooftops uh, a long time ago. Um, and they've gone back now 10 years later to do an energy audit of how those solar panels have performed in the different markets with the different weather. Um, and that just doing that as a, as a research project, but it's a live project because it is giving uh, income to the property or less income than they thought it was that they, can then go to the next group of properties or the next solar install installers and say, these are the problems that we had with this first round of installation. And this is how we're wanting uh, different expectations from you now. So the whole engaging in this process improves the process and improves all the suppliers in that, in that chain. Good. Good. Well, that's, that's a hopeful message. Uh, and we can end there, I think. I, I've learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners have as well. Um, I want to thank you guys, Sam and Sarah Adams of Vert Asset Management, for coming on the podcast uh, and uh, teaching us a little bit more about real estate and sustainability. Thank you so much, you guys. Thanks for having us, Joe. Thank you. Okay. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye, guys.